Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of The Scoop. My name is Dinah Jansen, and I have the great pleasure to welcome into the virtual studio today, Member of Provincial Parliament for Kingston and the Islands, Ian Arthur. Hello, Ian. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us and taking some time out of your very busy schedule. So, Ian, tell us a little bit about yourself and the role you play in our community as our MPP. Um, that's a, a very broad question, but I'll do my best to, to give you a succinct answer. Uh, I mean, it's been three years since I've been elected, so it's kind of evolved and changed as to what I do. And, and then, of course, everything that happens now is in the context of the pandemic. Uh, who would have thought uh, you'd be a first-time MPP and have to, to help a community through, through you know, a once-in-a-hundred-year sort of event that, that has some kind of dire implications for the community and, and for the province and, and the whole world. So it's been interesting. Uh, a little bit about myself. I, I mean, I think some of this has been said many times, but I used to be the head chef at Shea Piggy Restaurant. I've been involved with the NDP for many, many years behind the scenes, volunteering on the Riding Association. I, I joined actually because of Jack Layton uh, way back when. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing party and it's been... Yeah, it's been wonderful to get to have this opportunity to be the MPP for Kingston Islands. So you talked a little bit about how much of your work these days is centered around the pandemic. Uh, yeah, so we will be, of course, talking, I guess, a lot about that today, too. Yeah. So we'd like to hear more from you, Ian, about your response to the latest stay-at-home orders, which have now been in effect for a couple of weeks. Um, yeah. What do you think of the measures that are in place? Uh, there, there's always two sides to things. And, and I think that unfortunately we got to a place in Ontario where a lockdown was necessary. When we looked at how many cases, uh, how much the cases were increasing each day that we weren't managing to even plateau it. The second wave has been so much worse than the first wave that, and I think the delayed response on the part of the government really drove us to this being our only option. Um, I, I think that, you know, it was too late and it had to be a lot more severe than it would have been if there had been a different approach in October or November or something like that when we were still at the, you know, the 700 cases a day mark, which is where we peaked in the first wave. That should have been the threshold for response. It wasn't. Uh, and then we were put in the situation of needing a much longer and much more strict lockdown. And I think that's had uh, a really negative effect on on a lot of, of businesses and individuals okay you know? how so um well obviously from a business standpoint they were forced to close again and and all of the policies on a provincial level so far seem to almost target small businesses which is an absolutely backwards way of going about it we we have big box stores who are open those stores that have the capital uh, to weather storms like this, and we are forcing the small ones are, are the ones that are being forced to close, uh, limit their operating hours. And, you know, when you look at, at the uh, stats about how much, I, I think the last time I read it, I'm sure it's more at this point, it was a few months ago, how many more billions the billionaires of Canada earned during the pandemic. They have massively increased their wealth. And it's at the same time that countless small businesses are either just barely scraping by or not scraping by and closing. And so when you're faced with a lockdown like this, that's full of loopholes, it's full of contradictions and vague instructions. Um, uh, you know, there's 
people who want to do the right thing are almost being punished for doing the right thing. And those who want to flaunt the rules, it's it, there's so many loopholes that they get to do it. Okay. So let's talk about the situation right here in our community. How are things going in Kingston in your view and, and the area and uh, what role are you playing to assist in uh, ensuring our city comes out of this? Okay. Um, so we, I, I don't think that there's a better example anywhere in Canada of, of how to handle the, the pandemic. I mean, and, and this is full credit to, to Dr. Kieran Moore and the folks at Kingston Health Sciences Center. Uh, they've been working in conjunction, both public health and, and our medical facilities. They have done an incredible job. I can't say enough positive about Dr. Moore. They have, I think, probably the best contact and trace program in the entire province. Um, and the numbers reflect that, you know, we, we, our, our peaks in, in cases per hundred thousand are so much lower than the rest of the province. Like it, it, it is a good news story and it is a testament to the hard work of the, the essential workers who make this happen, but also of everyone else who understands the necessity of, of the precautions that we take and takes them seriously and, and, you know, doesn't flaunt them, unfortunately. You know, we, we have examples like the MPP north of us, Mr. Hillier, who who seems to have huge problems with some of the safety measures that are out there. But that doesn't seem to have, none of that has taken hold in this community. We have a responsible, uh, dedicated community, and they, they've done an amazing job. Like, it's because of the actions of the community that Dr. Moore's efforts are so successful. Okay. And that's, I think, really, really important. Thank you so much. Now let's talk uh, talk about measures at the provincial level, how the province is doing in the management of the pandemic in your view. And maybe it might be difficult from a political perspective, but let's start with the ways in which the province might be performing well. Have you any ideas there? Um, yeah, I think that there's always aspects that I think the prov province does better on than others. I think that uh, certainly the messaging from early on, there. You know, I think Mr. Ford does try and relay uh, the information that people need in, in his press conferences. I think that's been really strong. Um, in terms of, of other parts, I think we handled the first wave really well. I think mm -hmm. that that was by and large a success story. It was certainly very hard on businesses again, but we were able to handle it in a way where we got them open for the summer season. There was income coming in that, that did help a number of folks. Um, and then some of the provincial programs, I think, have been successful in terms of energy rebates and stuff like that for businesses that, that have energy. Um, but, you know, this is certainly I'm not against giving credit where credit is due, but I think that there are also, you know, large loopholes and, and large problems in terms of the government's response and, and entire areas where they need to do they could have done so much of a better job. And, you know, our, our job as, as the official opposition is to hold the government to account. It's, it's not a personal thing. It's identifying, in a lot of ways, our job is to identify risk. Where are the actions of the government creating risk for the province and how do we bring those to folks' attention? Okay. And now as a member of the official opposition, 
Uh, let's hear a little bit more about the key measures uh, your colleagues and yourself believe would help to alleviate pressures on our community members, for example, vis-a-vis uh, -vis rent control and interest payments, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, all of those things would be fantastic. Um, we 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 have we fought for a freeze in evictions from day one, a ban until after this is over. They've done these small temporary bans off and on. None of them are consistent. None of them have any length to them to provide people with stability. Uh, paid sick leave. If you're forced to take two weeks off and self-isolate because you were exposed to COVID through no fault of your own, uh, you have to be able to afford to do that. And that requires mandatory paid sick leave. And, and frankly, in the times of a global pandemic, it should be the province picking up that bill. These businesses, it should not be placed on the small businesses that can't afford to, to cover those costs. So there should be a program from the provincial government, hopefully with supports from the federal government, that provide those 10 days of paid sick leave. You have to go home and isolate. You shouldn't fear not being able to make rent or buy groceries because of, of those health precautions. Um, we, we'd like to see a massive ramp up in, in the testing and contact tracing. Kingston's success in a large part beca was because Dr. Moore ran such a fantastic contact and trace program. But, and, and I had a hard time believing this when I found out there is no provincially centralized contact and trace program. It is left up to individual uh, health units to decide whether they're going to do it, to find the resources to do it. None of them were provided with more resources. And there's no information sharing between health units unless they come up with agreements between themselves. The province has just handed this off, not been involved in it at all. And that's hugely problematic. There, there's health units where they're still faxing results um, or receiving okay. results by fax. Like, like those sort of things. We knew the second wave was coming. We should have had a province-wide fully-fledged contact and trace program up and running. And the last one is the tragedy that's unfolding in long-term care. The iron ring never arrived. The death toll in the second wave is worse than the first wave. Thousands of people have lost loved ones. Um, it, it's a full-scale tragedy. And, you know, the government's refusing to provide information to the, the commission that's doing an inquiry into this. They're not even cooperating. So they're trying to make sure that the public doesn't learn about this, doesn't have access to the information as to what really happened. I think, I think we know a lot of what happened, but where were the decisions made that allowed the second wave to be worse than the first? We had six months to get long-term care homes ready, and we were not even close to being ready. So what do we do moving forward? I, I think allocate the resources where they're needed. I understand that we are in a deficit situation, but this is unprecedented times and we should be using uh, deficit spending in the most strategic manner we possibly can with targeted supports for small businesses, for families who are most affected by this, uh, for those folks in long-term care. You know, there was private for-profit long-term care homes are still allowed to have their workers work in multiple long-term care homes. The government could and should have mandated that if you work in long-term care, you're only allowed in and out of one home. That's how it's being transferred between multiple homes. They know that. And that's not the fault of those workers. The, these for-profit companies refuse to give their workers full-time hours so they don't have to pay them benefits. And so to make ends meet, people end up working in multiple homes. That's, you know, that's a tragedy in and of itself. And the repercussions of, of, the the need for profit 
you know, is it's costing lives. So what advice do you have for community members who want to have their voices heard on these issues? How did they reach out and let the government know what they think? Uh, there's lots of ways to do that. You know, certainly contacting the premier's office on, on stuff that comes from the premier. If there's stuff that the community wants me to advocate on, we, my staff are, are working nonstop. We, we haven't really stopped since we took, a, I think, the, the week between Christmas and New Year's off. Um, but, uh, other than that, we have an incredible team and they are doing everything we possibly can. We're helping folks apply to different programs that are out there to, to help them if they need it. Uh, so the office is open and functioning. Um, it's, it's closed to the public. We're all working remotely, um, and coming into office, the, the actual office on different days, but, but we're able to do basically everything we need to do to serve the community. Uh, remotely. So we are here, you know, folks should feel free to get in touch, even if they just need to vent about something that they find frustrating. Uh, you know, if they, that's, I, I'm here to serve the community. Um, and, and I will do that to the, to the best of my ability. Okay, thank you, Ian. Now, have you any advice for uh, not only our community members, but our campus members here at Queen's University on staying safe and keeping others safe? Listen to what the public health experts say. They're experts for a reason. And in particular here, they have guided us through this incredibly hard time. And I just, I, I've been saying this since day one. My job is to listen to the experts. I'm a politician. I am not a public health expert. And if they give me advice, my job is to say, I believe them. I understand it. There's, you know, it's, it's, they are experts for a reason and, and my faith in them should also be reflected in the community. We need to have faith in people who know how to handle these situations and, and allow them to do their jobs and, and respect what they're asking us to do. And that will be the quickest way we can possibly get through the other side of this. Great. Anything else to add before we close today, Ian? No, I think that's everything. Thanks so much for having me on. It's nice to be able to chat about this stuff. All right, folks, we have been talking with Kingston and the Islands MPP, Ian Arthur, all about the coronavirus pandemic, what's happening across the province and what's happening right here in our community. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. You're listening to The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM. That was a great conversation we just had with MPP Ian Arthur. And now we're going to jump into a conversation with an upcoming event happening tomorrow and lasting until February 6th. This is the Real Out Queer Film Festival happening here in Kingston, Ontario, but virtually. And we're going to speak with Matt Salton, who is the executive director of Real Out. So before we get right into it, Matt, welcome to CFRC. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, my name is Matt Sultan. I'm the executive director of the Without Arts Project um, and I have been with the organization for 21 years wow. and I started as a volunteer in the second year of the festival. Um, I was looking for an opportunity to um, flex my uh, burgeoning film interest and also my advocacy and activism and it was like the perfect marriage of both mm -hmm. so um yeah and as I've never really shook it so I've been the executive director for for 12 years now and um and learning something new 
every day, especially this year. Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, so can you speak with us a little bit about the history of Real Out um, and what it started off as, um, I guess, over 20 years ago, 22, 23 years ago, and what it has grown to today? Sure. Well, it started in uh, 1999 um, mm -hmm. on Queen's campus, um, uh, to be specific, at the Grey House on uh, Queen's Crescent, Bader Lane. Um, and it was a joint project and working group of uh, Kingston Operd, the Ontario Public Interest Research Group. Um, and it was started by one of its staff volunteers, Marnie McDermott, and Marnie uh, liaised with um, some Queen's uh, students, faculty, staff, and a couple of uh, the town um, uh, activists, and they created the Reel Out Collective and they um, designed test screenings um, it, uh, at the, uh, there was a, um, a local gay bar called Robert's Club Vogue. It was at 477 Princess Street, right where University and Princess meet. It's a, it's a bicycle store now. Okay. And um, yeah, so they had, um, they, they did um, two nights uh, on the weekend and they show short films uh, on the dance floor and they packed the dance floor with people in fold-out chairs. Um, and, uh, and that's when they decided that, that Kingston um, could sustain at least uh, a three-day film festival if they tried it at the screening room. And so that's what they did. And uh, I attended and um, I was just blown away to, to not only like be in an environment that wasn't a gay bar where I was surrounded by queer people, mm -hmm. but also um, to see myself represented and to see people who were like me, but say, you know, were quite different from me. So had very different circumstances. And it could mm -hmm. be primarily what I was really blown away was people who live in, in other countries. And, you know, and, and me at the time, you know, this was like, 2000, 99, 2000, and I thought I had it pretty bad, and then I looked at, you know, other regions, and I just thought, like, oh my goodness, like, we have so much work to do, so much work to do, mm -hmm. and, and I am so grateful to see their, to hear their stories, and to see their lives, so that was my hook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure, that's really awesome, um, yeah. and so kind of, like, um, you know, the way that it started, it was definitely, like, out of this small kind of, like, bar in Kingston, and now it's definitely, like, you know, something bigger, and you're um, kind of doing it at the screening room, and, you know, do you have people who kind of come in from out of town in previous years for this festival? Yeah, I mean, we 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 have, we, we stopped doing outreach to, like, we used to do a lot of outreach to Ottawa, Toronto, and but we found that like a, a lot of our tourists uh, come within like just just like the 45 kilometer mark or more okay. so we got a lot of people from like the rural areas uh, a lot of couples um, that come in and um, and there's a lot of returning guests especially like on our like you know our 15th or 20th uh, right. we had people come in uh, couples that had, had met at real out and had actually are now married yeah, there's all we get all kinds of stories about like how Relet has really been a terrific social connection to people. Mm -hmm, that's awesome. Um, and you know, 
this year, obviously things are very different given COVID-19 and the lockdown restrictions that are in place. So how are you folks running Real Out this year? So we are, we are going to be 100% virtual. Um, we would have liked to have tried to um, experiment with some hybrid stuff, but um, obviously Ontario is in a complete, like with, it's locked down. So mm -hmm. um, we, we needed to prepare about a month ago and we needed to make a decision whether or not we were going to make it hybrid or just like, let's do it all online. So that's what we're doing. We're doing it all online. Um, and, uh, it's that is I mentioned earlier about um, learning things every year. This has been a huge uh, learning curve for me because uh, it's a completely different beast, and I'm not uh, I'm kind of a technophobe. So uh, the fact that we're even talking on Zoom is a miracle. Um, <laughs> so learning uh, learning the platform um, is interesting. I, fingers crossed, it seems to be all working <laughs> in, in preparation for Friday, so that's good. Um, there's a lot of stuff on the back end that nobody in the audience needs to know about that we're still figuring out, but um, we're going to have, the biggest obstacle still is more of a philosophical one, and that is like, how do you bring people together as a community, um, which is really important for Real Out, um especially um you know january february when it's cold and people mm -hmm. are really struggling with their mental health and then pour on a pandemic on top of that yeah uh, how do you how do you how do you bring people together when everyone's sitting at home watching films on their tvs or their laptops or mm -hmm. their phones um so right now we are in the process of our my board actually has stepped up and they have offered to host Zoom meetings that will be scheduled um, after certain programs. Mm -hmm. So, and it, they're nothing, it's nothing official, it's nothing like academic. It is like purely um, creating a social space for people to just, you know, like watch the films and they just wanna like jump into a room and like chat with other people that watch them too. They don't have to say anything either. They could just like just hang out. Mm -hmm. But it is it more of an interactive feel. And then of course we do have um, a little bit more formalized um, discussions as well. Mm -hmm. So we have um, the opening night um, on Friday. Uh, the opening film is called Drama Rama, and the director uh, Jonathan Wysocki is going to be. Um, interviewed after the film by one of our programmers, Kemi King. Okay, and, awesome. Yeah, and then we're gonna do the same thing with uh, one of the documentary films called Well-Rounded, and that's um, the director, Shanna Mayera, um, is going to be interviewed by uh, Queen's prof, Tamara Lang. Oh, oh yes, I love Tamara, yeah. Uh, my editor is a professor last year, she was really great. She is great. Yeah. Um, no, that really sounds awesome. And, um, you know, it's really great that, um, you know, despite COVID, you're still able to have the festival and still bring people together because a sense of community is also very important um, for this. And um, I guess my ne next question kind of in relation to this is, do you think in future years, once, you know, hopefully COVID's um, all over and done with, do you think you'll still have like online options for people um, and maybe do a hybrid festival in the future? Um, I mean, I'm resistant to it, but yes, I think that like it definitely um, 
it definitely has some bonuses. Um, the number one that comes to mind is accessibility. Yes, for sure. Um, and, and, and that's really important to us as well. I mean, we, for years we struggled finding a venue that was accessible. Um, and uh, now the screening room is accessible, but um, there are still, there's still barriers. So um, yeah, I think uh, definitely a couple of programs could be um, online virtual. Um, but yeah, like I said, like I'm, I'm quite resistant to it. I think there's some people on our board that like really like this, mm -hmm. uh, but I just think it's antithetical. Yeah, for sure. Um, and what are you most looking forward to with Reload um, coming up so soon? Uh, for it to be over. <laughs> <laughs> As what most festival directors say, yes. Um, I am looking forward to, okay, so um, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to feedback. I always love to hear what people think of the films. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing, because at each film, uh, the audience has the opportunity to vote uh, for and rate. And um, so I'm looking forward to see uh, like just how they, they, they feel about the films. We had over a thousand films submitted this year, like the most we've ever had, seven times the amount we've ever had. Wow. Um, and our, programmer, program, our programming committee um, uh, worked really hard to get through all of those films to pick these 68. So um, I'm really looking forward to hearing the feedback. I'm really looking forward to um, the shorts this year. There are some excellent shorts. And um, I'm really proud of the work that the programming committee did in putting those shorts together and the different um, themes. Um, and yeah, there's a great documentary. If people are really like docs, I, I just wanted to recommend um, a program called She's Reeling Out. And um, at the top, on the top of my head, I just can't think of the date and time, but it's, if you look that up on our um, platform, um, it's open to anyone in Canada, which is great. Um, and it's a collection of short documentaries made by women. And with, and some of them are like traditional documentaries. Some of them are like more like sort of like video blogs or vlogs. Um, and um, they're just all really good. I'm really, really proud of that program. And in particular, there's one um, called The Garden Collective by Sarah Wiley. And it is about um, former uh, inmates of the uh, Kingston's Prison for Women okay. um, that are planning a, a garden on the current um, site of the Prison for Women. So a little local um, connection there. Yeah, that's really awesome. That sounds like some, yeah, yeah definitely things to be looking forward to. Um, yeah. Before we end off, is there anything else that you'd like to add or mention? Um, no, I mean, I just, um, I just really hope that people um, can find an escape with Real Out this year. Um, I think that film is so important um, um, for that purpose. It's terrific for my mental health. And I think for a lot of people who are just really tired of all of this, mm -hmm. um, we're, we're providing you 68 portals to wow. somewhere else. So, um, and we hope everyone gets through this um, well and soon. <laughs>
for sure. Um, no, thank you so much, uh, Matt, for um, joining me today um, here to discuss Reelout and stuff. Um, we'll definitely be sure to promote it more on our airways so that way people can check it out. Um, yeah, but thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you for listening to The Scoop, produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples.